the, the smart person would probably stand up on the floor and say, you know, near as I can tell, we're supposed to have a Republican form of government. And it seems like we have a party form of government or an alliance or a factional form of government where enough people politically can get together and decide to turn their back on the Constitution and do whatever they want. And near as I can tell, that is unconstitutional. And everybody that took an oath to office that is standing in this room today has just violated their oath by not supporting the Constitution and supporting factional government. Yes, it is indeed the Ramble Room. The rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated. We're still here. As most of you know, I'm down in Cheyenne, a freshman legislator at the Wyoming House of Representatives. And you hear often down here that you know your first time around is like drinking from a fire hose. And I tell you, they're not kidding. It has been very time-consuming and yet very rewarding. Running a number of bills of interest that we'll be talking about in subsequent shows. One of them, though, is called the Wyoming Sovereignty Act. And this is basically what is commonly called a nullification bill. It seeks to restrain the federal government to its own enumerated powers. And those powers that are left to the states should be left to the states. It is designed to combat federal overreach. This is something that I ran on both times that I ran and something that I'm quite serious about. It is also something that can be pretty complex and meets a lot of resistance, even down here in Cheyenne. So for a little bit of help, I went to an old friend. His name is G.R. Mobley. G.R. runs a website that I would invite you to look at. It's called MobiusStripPress.com. That's M-O-B-I-U-S-S-T-R-I-P-P-R-E-S-S, all one word, MobiusStripPress.com. I would invite you to go there and look through that website. I think you'll find a lot of very interesting information. Certainly it's, it's some heady stuff. I had a phone conversation with him, and whenever you talk to GR, you might as well just sit back. So I cut out some of what he said on that phone conversation, wanted to share it with you, and just give you some idea of what we're dealing with when you, when you talk to him. So here is part of my conversation with G.R. Mobley. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so the annotated constitution is the constitution that the federal government uses formally. It is their constitution, and it is a... Uh, almost a 4,000-page document. It basically uh, injects case law and how the federal government has made determinations on what is constitutional and what isn't constitutional and how they will enforce the Constitution. Now, near as I can tell, there's never been an amendment to allow the federal government to basically create and pervert and subvert the Constitution with such a, you know, an abominable document. 
but somehow they have done it and they've created this thing. And so when you walk into or when you deal with the federal government and they talk, well, that's not constitutional. This is what's constitutional. They're, they're not referring to the Constitution, the or what I would call the organic Constitution. Most people kind of look what what the original Constitution that was ratified by the 13 states. And so I, I, I harp on this a lot, that if the states are going to create a level playing field, they have to definitize the Constitution. The, if, if you really think about it, and if you understand, you know, how religion has kind of, you know, morphed, and, you know, if you look at the Bible today, how many different Bibles are there, and how many different interpretations of the Bible are there, and so forth— and so that's why a lot of people say you got to get back to the original text of what those words really stated. So that fundamentally, our government has done exactly what a lot of religious, I'll say nefarious religious people have done by taking full control over what those words say and using them for their own advantage, almost like the, the traditional or the, the Catholic Church of old. Where the you know, and if you understand Martin Luther and the ninety five theses yep. and how he he basically identified ninety five things that the Catholic Church was doing that did not jive with the scriptures, and right. and so what we have to do as as the states the states have to go you know what we we never authorized you to have your own constitution and to interpret it that way. That is our contract because the states are the parties to it. They're the ones that created it, and that compact created the federal government. It is up to the states to determine what that stuff is. So there's some documents that I'd love you to read and get you really smart on this. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. If you're not, this is when the federal government violated the Constitution with the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. And Thomas Jefferson wrote the Kentucky Resolutions, and James Madison wrote the Virginia Resolutions in kind to basically respond to what Jefferson stated. And then this, the rest of the states rejected what they were supposed to do. But this is where these two men make the academic argument that only the states can determine when it comes down to something that is not in that contract or something that has been specified in that contract and the states determine that the federal government has violated that contract as specified, then it is up to the states to enforce that. And so the, the, a lot of people use the term nullification that the states have to nullify. That is incorrect. Right. That what the states have to do is they have to interpose. And so I've got a lot of documents that really go through how nullification, a single state nullification is an abomination in our union. Because if you, if you think about it, the 50 states are married together on the principles of the Constitution. When one state decides, I'm not going to abide by this, like if the southern states started to use slavery again, 
because they're just going to ignore that. And northern states decide that they're going to ignore this part of the Constitution. And, and other parts of the states, you know, they decide what they want to cherry pick and what they want to follow of the federal government or not. That creates chaos. And it doesn't, it doesn't create the harmony and it loses the spirit. It's basically, it completely destroys our Constitutional Republic. And that's where we are today because the states are trying to go down those types of paths. And we have to Correct. we have to get back on to what the Constitution says and what the federal government can do based on that Constitution and force them back into that box. And this the states have all the power to do this. We only need a majority of the states. We don't need two thirds. We don't need three fourths. We only need a majority of the states to demand full compliance to the Constitution. When you start to realize all of the things that are in the Constitution, I believe this is when you start to see our creator's DNA in this document. Because the 14th Amendment, which a lot of people say a lot of disparaging things about, the 14th Amendment has been truly the, the final piece to the, to the puzzle to give us all the teeth necessary to force the federal government into compliance. This is one of the reasons why everybody kind of, you know, calls and refers to the 14th Amendment as that bastard stepchild. The liberals right. don't like parts of it and the conservatives <clears throat> don't like parts of it. But anybody that looks at that that 14th Amendment and they look at how it was debated in Congress Every assertion from the liberals and the conservatives have no standing. They have no ground. They, what they're basically saying is not within that document. It's not there. What that document does do is it refutes the perversions that have been created by both sides of the problem. Because technically, and, and I don't know where you stand on this, but technically one of the greatest problems that this country has in its, you know, in its misguidings or how we've been led down this this wrong path has come from the parties. And so Makes if sense. you if you didn't know, we see we're supposed to have a Republican form of government. Right. And if you followed what happened in Congress uh, over the leadership and committees, a Republican form of government is representative of the people. So where in the Constitution does it say that the party can control all of the committees that the, that Congress is going to have? Where does where does it say that, hey, if you have a majority in the party, you can seize full control of, over government? In other words, that makes it we have a, a party form of government, not a Republican form of government. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it so it makes absolute sense. And that's what we're in trouble Monday. We're going to have a vote on the rules. And that's kind of that whole thing's an abomination of, of what it ought to be. Right. And so if you if you really look and the smart the, the smart person would probably stand up on the floor and say, you know, near as I can tell, we're supposed to have a Republican form of government. And it seems like we have a party form of government or an alliance or a factional form of government where enough people politically can get together and decide to turn their back on the Constitution and do whatever they want. And near as I can tell, that is unconstitutional. And everybody that took an oath to office that is standing in this room today has just violated their oath by not supporting the Constitution and supporting factional government. 
back to yeah. back to this party form of government. When we look at the constitutional process of how we're supposed to choose our our president, we the people are to choose our electors. In the original process of choosing the electors, all the electors were chosen by the people, except for two, the Senate um, of the or the state house. Excuse me, the state house chose the two that represented the Senate. So, like in Virginia, the people of the legislative districts voted for their elector, and then their elector casted the ballot to elect the president. That's the process. We're not supposed to have direct elections. But when we look at how we do it today, we don't even choose our electors. Who chooses the electors? The party. Right. The party and the convention votes for who the electors will be. And near as I can tell, that's not in the Constitution, nor are primaries to be able to whittle down who the candidates can be and who the can the eligible candidates that can be considered for president can be done by the party. Near as I can tell, that's unconstitutional as well. Near as I can tell, the concept of uh, the party or winner take all regarding the party and taking all of the electors is not only uh, you know not within the electoral college clause. It's repugnant to Republican form of government because if a legislative district chooses a particular elector or a particular way, let's say they go Republican, then how is it that that is for, that the Democratic representation is forced upon that legislative district? I mean, if, you, if we start examining how the party has co-opted full control over our government, now we start unveiling, you know, one of the, the puppet masters that's back behind that stage of, you know, playing this big elaborate game of politics here in America. And they're not the only ones because it's corporations, banks, and a lot of other players back there that are pulling all the strings. And and, and I know you know these things, but um, the constitutional context to all of this is we they don't have any authority to do this. The, the party, you know, basically assumed this control. And we don't have a government that allows parties to basically compromise to say, okay, we're going to create a health care system. No, they have to amend the constitution to create a health care system. So one of the things that, because we've never talked before and I'm fire hosing you, right? I feel, I feel, I feel like <laughs> well, I we do. Have, we have spoken, we have spoken once. So it's not the first time I've been. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a long blasted. time ago. That's right. That's right. Yes, it was. It was actually yep. after the last election and I, I encouraged you to run again. And so that's right. I, yep. Thank you. <laughs> and so I'm glad you did. But I have a video out that I have a couple of videos out. One video basically says that everybody in Congress must be removed because just because of the border crisis that they're claiming is an immigration border crisis, when in fact, constitutionally, it is an invasion. And the Constitution requires, the language of the Constitution requires that if we are under an invasion, the invaders must be repelled. It doesn't say to stop. To you know, to uh, you know, let them stay in place, hunker in place, and become citizens, or process them to become citizens. It says they must be repelled. Congress shall have the power to call forth the militia, to execute the laws of the union, to suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. 
And in Article 4, Section 4, it says that the United States guarantees to each state in the Union a Republican form of government and shall protect each from an invasion. And so when we this video, it's about seven minutes long, and it proves how every member of Congress, because they've never called forth the militia to repel this invasion and to begin the initiation of repelling, They've, they have failed to do their job. They have failed to fulfill their oath of office. And they all must be removed and or at least stop this invasion now and start following the Constitution. Um, I, I don't like scorched earth mentalities, but, you know, sometimes you have to be really bold and strong and basically, you know, kind of backslap some people and, you know, get them to realize, right. hey, you, you know, you're way off base here. And if you don't get in line, you know, you're going to be out in the cold. The other video I have that you really should probably want to watch is the three presidential vetoes of the Department of Transportation, because when it comes down to the executive departments that have been created since the beginning, since the Department of Treasury, the Department of State and the War Department, all other departments are unconstitutional. And the, the three presidential vetoes of the Department of Transportation proves this because you have to amend the Constitution to exercise any powers that are not within the Constitution. This, the, the three presidents that vetoed attempts, congressional attempts to create footings for the Department of Transportation was James Madison. James Monroe and the first Democratic president, Andrew Jackson, all three stated that the power does not exist within the Constitution to have that power, to create that department or to have those footings of power. And so um, when you really look at what they said and how they said it and James Monroe, actually, the way he did it, he 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 pointed to the six justifications like post roads and all these other things. And he said, even if you combined all of them, the power still does not exist for the federal government to maintain, to improve and to, you know, to create highway systems and waterway systems within the United States. And so. This is how far we've gone. And that was the very first, you know, direct attempt of a usurpation. By the time they created the Home Department, which should really resonate in Wyoming, the Home Department is what we call the Department of Interior today. And in, 18, okay. in 1849, when they created the Department of Interior, if we look at the claims of the United States over its land, we were pretty much coast to coast. There was just small little strips, I think New Mexico and Arizona, possibly, maybe California. And we're talking about small little strips that weren't a part of the contiguous United States that we have today. So why is it that in 1849 they created this permanent department when we were about to sunset the need for acquiring land? Ah, because they'd been doing it for so long that there were so many people doing working in the interior in, in helping this land turn into states that they said, you know what? It just seems unfair that we have to lay all these people off. So now we're going to create this permanent department. And then what they started doing is they started, and I proved this, and I, and I can walk you through how to do this, because all you got to do is go through the enabling acts. But 
<clears throat> when you when you look at the um, the enabling acts and you look at Article Four, I think it's uh, Section Three, where it talks about the United States shall um, or Congress shall have the power to admit new states or actually shall admit new states into the union. It's not a power. In other words, when you read this part of the Constitution, this is a role and responsibility, but not a power. They don't have the power to dictate what that state is going to do. They can't make that state slave. They have no ability to create a what they call a self-destiny. In other words, your destiny is to be a slave state. Does that make sense? And so when you look at where they start talking about Congress shall have the power, it's after they talk about the responsibility and then associated to the responsibility is the power to regulate and dispose of the land. But that's only when it becomes a state is when they dispose of that land. Or if they choose to, if it's a territory and they choose to trade it to, to Mexico for another chunk of land or something like that, then they do have that power. But once it becomes a sovereign state, it's over, it's done. That state now rises above superiority over the federal government. The federal government is a service agency that's supposed to only do these very specific things. And so the, as the states came into the union, they were all to have this, this doctrine called equal footing was used in the very first enabling acts when they brought in Kentucky and I think it was New Hampshire and Tennessee and all these new states, they all said that you're coming in with exact equal footing. Well, down the road, by the time the Missouri Compromise started, this is when they started actually taking away the equal footing and saying, okay, any state that happens to form south of this latitude on the globe, that's going to be a slave state. Well, they, where's that power? That was all proven later on to be an unconstitutional assertion that they don't have anywhere in the art, in Article 4 any authority to withhold any land when they create a state. That is all state property. The only, As a matter of fact, one of the things that I try to help people, and I've got some good articles that you probably want to read, the jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of property is limited to enumerated properties. In other words, the Constitution that we have and the way it was described during the ratification debates is enumerated. In other words, the Constitution lists the roles that the federal government is supposed to have. It lists the responsibilities it's supposed to have. It lists the powers that it is supposed to have. It lists the property that it is supposed to have, such as magazines, forts, shipyards, and, and territories in an ambiguous way. They're supposed to manage territories as they transition them into states. When you read the essence and when you read the ratification debates, every everyone in the ratification debates looked at the federal government as a steward in, you know, basically preparing and maturing territories to become states. Never. And as a matter of fact, this came out very specifically in the Virginia ratification debates that the federal government was not to own any land that was not enumerated. In other words, they couldn't own anything other than those needful buildings, those shipyards, those magazines and those forts and those types of things. That's it. Because if they could own forests, if they could own the land, then they can start seizing control and power over the people. This also helped people understand this concept of a standing army. Because one of the things that came into this whole, you know, possession of land, the militia, standing army, and everything else, 
when they talked about standing army, it had nothing to do with the military. It had everything to do with enforcement of the law. And it had everything to do with the king being able to keep the people off of his land and to be able. And that's why when they say a standing army is the greatest mischief, they were literally talking about the federal government or the central government, the king, to be able to enforce any arbitrary law he wants, which is why they pinned it in that the only execution or the only enforcement of the law was to be done by the militia. In other words, it was one of these checks and balances that they placed that we, the people, had the ultimate check on the federal government. That if they created a law, we would have to enforce it. And if we felt that that law was oppressive or unconstitutional, we wouldn't enforce it. It was this this beautiful thing that they did. And actually, this goes back to the Lord's DNA. I mean, here we can see how he's created so many things to help us protect ourselves from a tyrannical government as long as we stayed vigilant to the spirit of the Constitution. You brought us full circle back to where we started. Thank you. Yeah. The- Thank you that that was recorded as well. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it, and, and you know what? But the, once you start reading these things, and, and I these are academic articles, so you don't you may not want to be faint of heart or you know tired at the end of the day to read these things because sometimes they're very heady and they're hard for people to you know sit down and just yeah. read. You don't you know. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine said, you know, I I can't read your stuff when when I have time to read it because it's usually at the end of the day and that's usually when I'm having a cocktail and my head starts spinning <laughs> and I can't keep track. You know, one of my favorite preachers of all time was Alexander Campbell. I have some of his writings, things like that, and just the vocabulary that he used is challenging to today. Yes. Because he, he's very, very specific in what words mean, and he uses them very precisely. The thought patterns that he uses, it's, it's different thought patterns. It's much more complex. It's like the difference between playing a three-chord hymn and some great masterful Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get it, yes. Um, right. Very, very different. A bit later, the conversation went like this. Most people don't realize that the relationship between the county and the state legislature is the same with the states and the Congress. Because it is the if if you look at how every state was created in the Union after the original 13, they were all created by the counties. The counties were, in the enabling acts, Congress delegated or basically enumerated that this county has this many delegates based on the census. They, they define how many counties get delegates and then that those delegates, as, as they choose them, go to this city and create their constitution. And that's how it was done. In other words, the constitutions of the states were never created by we, the people. The constitutions were created by delegates or a representative government or representatives of the people from the counties. And then they went back and the counties ratified it. And if all the and all the counties, there was never a point in time where I think a county said, no, we don't want that constitution. They all kind of unanimously accepted the constitution because they were, you know, they had the smacks of the, you know, the old American sound of government. And so, bottom line, the counties are the are the if you understand it, the parties to that compact. And so the the, the county commissioners have a role and responsibility. They're duty bound to interpose upon the state legislature if they're not doing their job. 
So we actually have a group up in Campbell County that is beginning to put pressure on their on their county commissioners. And we need and we're going to start doing this in lots of other counties in Wyoming, South Dakota and other places to start waking up the county commissioners. If they don't do their job, we're going to replace them in the next election. And I'll, I can explain all of this to you, because, but I, again, you only have so much time, and I can only put so much sand yeah. into that sandbag during the times we have. So, And one more piece of the conversation. Um, I, I probably will be traveling to South Dakota because I'm doing a resolution. So just imagine, I can state the case that the federal government has been committing direct warfare against the state sovereignty and against the, against the people and the Constitution. In other words, the greatest insurgency of, of all that's taking down America is coming from the federal government from the the fact that they're allowing foreign entities to buy resources and assets you know that are you know states and so forth like companies where the constitution forbids them from being able to do that or actually it's not enumerated for them to be able to sell anything my point is is that why is it that not one state in the union has not called for an emergency session in, in a resolution to basically say, we need to get to work and we've got, you know, no time to waste. We have to start taking the, on our federal government and holding it accountable and then communicating to the rest of the states to go, hey, let's wake up. This is direct warfare against us and they're about ready to destroy us. Why is it that the state legislatures are sitting on their hands doing nothing? I think a lot of it is ignorance. Absolutely, because they don't even recognize the warfare, this cultural warfare by allowing our border to just, you know, to allow these invaders to come in. This is all a part of their plan. And, you know, all the evidence can prove that they're behind all of this. The State Department was caught red handed in providing and helping with NGOs in Latin America with little, you know, uh, converted cards or translated cards to say, come to America. We'll help you become an American. We'll give you money and that kind of crap. I hope that you have enjoyed hearing GR and his comments. I think that. Certainly his points are worthy of study, and I hope that you will do so. It is my hope that in the coming days we can have a number of legislators on and have discussions about this and many other bills and events that are going on down here. Some of them, too, are not necessarily going to be political. We're just going to try to let you know about some of these people down here, who they are, uh, how they think, give you a little bit of an introduction to them. I've very much enjoyed my time down here so far and look forward to a very interesting couple of months and hope to be back in Sheridan come spring.